Well, church, pray with me. Christ in power resurrected. That's who we are here to worship. That's who you are, Lord, and we praise you for that. We pray that you would fix our eyes on you, the one who is robed in frail humanity, who has come to us in our sin and our longing and our brokenness and has loved us. Lord, you are indeed worthy of praise and of worship and of glory and of honor. And so we pray that you would give us eyes to see that truly, that we wouldn't be distracted by all the things going on around us. We pray that you would give us hearts to rejoice rightly, that our rejoicing would be full and lasting. We pray that you would give us responses that fit you, that we would indeed come to behold the wondrous mystery. So we pray that you would do that for your people here at Miller Heights Baptist Church this morning. We pray that you would do that for your people who are gathered all over your world to sing and cry out to you this morning. We pray that you would do that for Justin as he sits in his hospital bed, that his eyes would be fixed on you and that he would indeed behold the wondrous mystery that we are all here to do this morning. So have your way with us, we pray. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it is, it's good to see you this morning. We are really near to Christmas this week. Um, and we have come, one of the tasks before us this morning, I think, is the task of rejoicing. We have much cause for rejoicing because... Our God has come to dwell with us, Emmanuel, God with us. We looked at that last week. That's what we reflected on last week. And, and one of the reasons that we camped there, I, I told you last week, is my goal last week and this week is to lead us to slow down. Christmas season for us should be a time of slowing down, of reflecting, of being in awe of who our God is, of wondering at his glory and his majesty. But, but we recognize that Christmas season tends to be a season where we are rushing and rushing and rushing and aren't slowing down. And so the goal for last week and the goal for this week is to lead us to slow down. Last week we spent time meditating on the truth that God has come to us and one of the reasons that that is indeed good news is because God come to dwell with us is in fact the God who is our peace. And so that's what I want to focus on this morning, that Jesus indeed is our peace. So go ahead and, and grab a Bible and turn to the little book of Micah. If you don't have a Bible, you should be able to find a black hardback Bible in the pew rack in front of you. If you don't have a Bible and would like one, feel free to take that. That can be your gift from us to you. If you would like a Bible, we'd love for you to have one. Um, so whether it's a Bible on your phone or you brought your Bible or you snag one of those hardbacks, go ahead and turn over to Micah. Micah is a small book, so you may go past it a couple times. It's really near the end of the Old Testament. So if you get to Matthew, you've gone too far. If you get to, say, Psalms, you've not gone far enough. Um, and there are a couple passages in Micah that are a lot more uh, known by us than most of the book of Micah. So I'm guessing it's been a while since a lot of you have opened up and read the little book of Micah, but you will be familiar 
with this passage in Micah chapter 5. This is one of the Christmas passages that gets read a whole lot. And so we'll pick up in Micah 5 verses 2 through the first part of 5 here in a moment. Um, But as we are thinking about peace, as I hear pages still rustling, as you find your way over to the book of Micah, I think we need to take a little bit of a step back and spend some time thinking about the word peace. Peace is one of those words that I think in casual conversation, we can say the word peace and assume we all mean the same thing, but we will find that the word peace means different things to different people, and the way that this word is used can sometimes end up with us talking two different languages to each other without realizing that we're saying the same thing and meaning very different things by it. So uh, one of the ways that you'll typically hear the word peace used is people will say things like, we are looking forward to or hoping or working toward peace, say, in the Middle East. And by that, what people mean is we are looking forward to a time when there is no fighting in the Middle East. That's, that's what it means, is not conflict, is how most people think of the word peace. And if you were to look this up in the dictionary, Webster agrees with this definition. It says that peace means freedom from disturbance. Or a second definition it gives is a state or period in which there is no war or a war has ended. And so when we define peace typically, what we mean is the absence of something. That's all peace means most of the time that we use it, is there's not conflict. Now, this isn't something new. You're already in the book of Micah. Uh, Go ahead and look back at chapter 3. I want to show you this. So Micah, speaking to the false prophets, here's how he says they conceive of peace. Thus says the Lord... Concerning the prophets, which prophets? Oh, the fake ones, the ones, he says, who lead my people astray. What do they do? They cry, peace. And when do they cry peace? When they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. Peace is simply, for many people, the absence of Conflict. That's how the false prophets in Micah's day were talking about peace. That's how most people, I think, today talk about peace. This is a, a flimsy, thin, anemic understanding of peace. It just simply won't do. And if we are operating off of this understanding of peace, that it's just the absence of conflict, then we might ask the question, how do you get to peace? And people might offer two suggestions. The first is be nice, Right? If peace is just no conflict, then one of the ways to accomplish peace is say please, say thank you, have manners, be nice, be gentle, kids be quiet. Right? If that's all peace is, then one way to get it is be nice. The other way that our world tends to go after peace is through violence. So one way to accomplish no war is to just obliterate everything that stands in your way. So you raise up a mighty army, you march in, and you lay waste to anything or anyone that causes a disturbance. And the thought is, if we can squash all uprising, all differences of thought, all of these things, then we will have no conflict and we will have peace. Fun fact that's not so fun. If you think about where most dictators come from, 
It's from this second attempt at peace. Now, obviously, they want lots of other things like power and money and things, but what they would say is we are after peace, and the way that we get peace is we squash all conflict, and once we've squashed conflict, we then have peace, because peace is simply the absence of conflict. Now, all that is a far cry from what the Bible means by that same word. So, in the Bible, when we talk about peace, we're not simply talking about the absence of something. We're talking about the presence of something. And when the Bible talks about peace, it intends the presence of things set right. Peace isn't simply conflict gone. It's relationships set right. In this way, the Bible turns our understanding of peace on its head. And so rather than saying, if we could just end war, either by being nice or by having a stronger army, then peace would come because everybody who's left would just be friends. The Bible says the way that peace happens is things are set right and then wars will end. Uh, Let me show you this. Uh, You're still in in Micah. Uh, So look over a page at Micah chapter 4. So Micah says there's coming a day when God will establish his holy mountain and he will rule there and the nations from all around the world will come. And verse 3, Micah says, here's what will happen. He will judge between peoples and shall decide for strong nations far away. Judgment happens. God shows up. God sorts things out. He cleans up the mess. He sets things right. And when God does this, notice what happens. Second half of verse 3, And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. So here's the difference. Peace in the way that we typically use the word is always at best temporary because it's just not conflict at that moment. It's a ceasefire. It's an armistice. It's temporary. But the peace that the Bible is after, the peace that the Bible says Jesus will bring is a permanent peace because it's not a squashing of conflict. It's not a turning the other way and being nice and pretending as if conflict doesn't exist. The Bible's view of peace is one that actually sets things right and undoes the need for not peace. And so rather than the Bible saying the way that we get to peace is by being nice, the Bible says it's by setting right. Now this gets complicated because we quickly realize that we aren't so right ourselves and that we aren't in a position to just dole out justice and set things right. This becomes a messiness when we realize that we are bent towards sin the way that a plant is bent towards the sun. When we realize that we have a selfishness that just naturally wells up within us, when we have pride and arrogance that loves to come forth, and when we look to ourselves as first rather than others. And so for us, when we think about what does it look like to be people who look forward to God setting things right, Notice what Micah says in Micah chapter 6. We're just going to camp in Micah this morning. This is the other verse that I think most people know in Micah. Micah chapter 6, verse 8. Micah says, He has told you, O man, 
what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. In this vein, we learn that for us to do right, rather than first involving doling out justice, we are to be a people who are repenting and forgiving. So, peace is not simply the absence of conflict. It's not simply being nice and pretending that conflict doesn't exist. It's not being mighty and powerful and just quashing all conflict that comes against us. Peace is things set right. So with that in your mind, go ahead and turn over to Micah chapter 5, where we'll be for the rest of this morning. And I'm going to start reading for us in verse 2. So Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Here's what Micah says. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, Ephrathah, by the way, uh, is another word more or less for Bethlehem. If you want to jot these down, you can look at them later. Ruth 4.11 and Genesis 48.7, you can see that show up and, and see that those are basically the same thing. So Micah says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth, and then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure For now, he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. He shall be their peace. Well, the the goal for the rest of this morning, if you're taking notes, is there'll be three headings that we're going to sort this out under and try to think through and ponder and glory in the fact that Jesus is indeed our peace. And the first one we're going to look at is God's source of peace. So when God is working to bring peace to his world, where does he go to do this? And it is a little bit shocking if we're not used to the way that God works in his world. So look back at verse 2. Micah says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you will come one who is to rule. Now notice, God doesn't hear boil the opposition with niceness as a way to bring peace. He doesn't just give out gifts. He doesn't pat people on the head. He's not this cosmic grandfather. But nor is he raising up tanks and troops and sending in military conquests. Instead, in a different way of going after peace than we tend to think of this, God goes to Bethlehem Ephrathah, who is too little, to be among the clans of Judah, and from this little bitty town, God says, will come forth one who is to be ruler. Isaiah tells us that God's ways are not 
our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts. Now, that doesn't mean that his ways aren't consistent. And so if you've been reading your Bible very long, if you've been following Jesus for very long, you'll notice a pattern, and the pattern is this. God tends to use the weak, the small, and the lowly to shame and overpower the strong and mighty. Think about the story that God weaves. Remember Jacob and Esau. Jacob is the older one. Jacob is the trickster. Jacob is the problem child. But it's through this younger brother that God brings about the promises that started with Abraham. He doesn't go to the older. He goes to the younger. Fast forward a little bit. Think about Joseph and his brothers. Joseph, you remember the guy with the fancy coat, the dreamer of dreams, the one who has these visions that his brothers will bow down before him. And out of these 12 brothers, who is it that God chooses to exalt over the other brothers? It's little Joseph. Israel finds himself enslaved in mighty Egypt. And it's not mighty Egypt that God works through, it's lowly Israel that God works through. Joshua marches the people into the promised land and they show up against mighty Jericho. And what's the grand plan to take over Jericho? Yeah, go for a hike. March around the city over and over and over and then shout, because that'll do it. And the walls come tumbling down. Gideon is raised up to rescue the people of God. Mighty Midian is standing against them. And God's grand plan? Slice Gideon's army a couple times. Bring it down so it's such a small, ragtag group of people that surely you can't do anything with this. And on top of that, the plan is gather torches, gather jars, stand around the city, break your jars, and shout. Really good plan. But what happens? Midian goes to war against itself. The enemy is routed. God has his way, and he has his way over and over and over and over again, not by gathering the mighty, the strong, and the powerful, but by using the lowly, the weak, and the unexpected. God's ways are indeed consistent, even if they're not our ways or our thoughts. And so God speaks through Micah, and he tells Judah... The little old Bethlehem is going to be the town that produces the ruler that God is going to use to rule over his world. Now, who is this one who is to come from this little town of Bethlehem? Who is the one that the woman you see there in verse 3 is in labor with? Well, you'll notice if you look at it closely, there's a lot of things here that sound a little bit like David. Right? Where's David from? He's from Bethlehem. And how does David get anointed to be king? You know the story. Saul, tall, mighty, powerful Saul, who towards the end of his reign just does worse and worse and worse. God tells Samuel, the prophet, that he needs to go to little Bethlehem. And what does he need to do in little Bethlehem? He needs to go find Jesse. And he's going to anoint one of Jesse's sons to be king over Israel. And so he goes up to Jesse and he says, Jesse, I'm here to anoint one of your sons king. And Jesse goes, I know who you want. And he brings his oldest son before Samuel. And Samuel says, 
not him. Samuel says, God doesn't look at men the way that people do, but he looks at the heart. And so Jesse says, okay, well, I've got another son. And he brings son after son after son after son before Samuel. And all of them, Samuel says, that's not him. Samuel scratches his head and says, any chance you've forgotten one of your sons? Jesse says, well, there is this one son. His name's David. He's out in the field somewhere. Samuel says, bring him. And so Jesse fetches David, brings him before him, and the little shepherd boy becomes the mighty king of Israel. Again, we see that God's ways are consistent. And this mighty shepherd boy becomes the king, the archetype, the one that all kings afterwards are looking to imitate. And just notice the way that Micah describes this king who's going to come, this ruler. He comes from Bethlehem. That sounds like David. He's one who's going to shepherd his people. That sounds a lot like David. And he's going to do it, Micah says, in the strength of the Lord. And that sounds a lot like David, as we remember David telling Saul that he's taken out lions and bears in the strength of the Lord. Then he goes up against Goliath in the strength of the Lord, and he is again victorious. This sounds an awful lot like David. And what Micah is doing is Micah is pointing us back in order to point us forward. Micah says there is a greater David who is going to come. And this greater David will shepherd in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord, his God. Micah says, there is a greater David who is indeed coming to God's people. And so God's source of peace is a strange source. It comes from little Bethlehem, and it brings a greater David. And so then notice, secondly, how it is that God establishes this peace. So look at the second half of verse 3. Micah says, From Bethlehem is coming this ruler, and this ruler, notice what he will do. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. So the first thing that this mighty one is going to do is he is going to, div- uh, to unite the divided people. And so if you remember, for many, many, many years, the people of Israel have been split in half. Ever since the time of David's grandson, the nation split. They were at war, at conflict with each other. And this peace-bringing one from Bethlehem is going to unite the ununitable. He's going to bring together those who are at war with one another. And he will do this, Micah says, verse 4, he will stand and he will shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of his name. Micah says, the way that this ruler will unite the ununitable will be by shepherding in the strength of the Lord and by the power of his majestic name. And this will all result, Micah says, in a secure future. They shall dwell secure, he says, 
For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. So unlike the peace that everybody was used to, this is no temporary peace. This is a permanent peace because the ruler that's to come from Bethlehem is to be a permanent ruler whose name will be great to the ends of the earth. Now, interesting question for us. Micah says that they will dwell secure because his name will be great to the ends of the earth. Imagine you're one of Micah's listeners at this point. Who is it that you think Micah is saying his name will be great to the ends of the earth? A couple options. Do you think it's option A, the ruler who's raised up from Bethlehem, or option B, the Lord himself? Here's where this gets tricky and interesting. It sure sounds like in Micah 5 that Micah has in mind that it's the ruler from Bethlehem whose name is to be great to the ends of the earth. That's what it looks like, right? But turn back a page to Micah 4. Look at verse, verses 6 and 7. Micah says, In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame. Here God is doing his thing again, gathering the people who no one else wants. I will assemble the lame and gather those who've been driven away and those whom I have afflicted, and the lame I will make the remnant, and those who were cast off a strong nation, and the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. So Micah 4 sounds like Micah is saying it is the Lord who's going to be great to the ends of the earth. Micah 5 sounds like he's saying it's the ruler who's come from Bethlehem who's going to be great to the ends of the earth. And what I want to do for just a moment is let that mystery sit. Because the last move I want to make for us this morning is the identity of the one who is their peace. So verse 5, the very first part, you see Micah says, and he shall be their peace. Who is this greater David? Who is the one who's come to bring peace to his people? Who's the one born from Bethlehem, born from the woman? Who is this greater David? Well, you know. Jesus is our peace. Jesus is the one who unites the ununitable. And so as we approach Christmas, one of the things that's important for us is not to hold things too far apart. So we're right now remembering, reflecting, rejoicing in the incarnation, but don't forget what it was that Jesus came to earth to accomplish. Jesus was not just born of woman. Jesus also went to the cross, died for his people, and what did he do? He unites the ununitable. Humanity and its creator united through Jesus. That's what we saw Micah said this ruler from Bethlehem is going to do. But it's not just vertical uniting that Jesus does. Jesus also unites horizontally. So Paul makes a big deal out of this. We are set right with God, therefore we have peace with God. But Jesus also, Paul says, tears down the dividing wall of hostility so that Jew and Gentile might come together, so that male and female, slave and free, 
all of these people who were not to belong together in Jesus find an identity together, find peace with one another, because Jesus, the ruler from Bethlehem, the one born of woman, has come to unite his people together and give them peace. And here's here's where I think this should click for us. See, the reason peace doesn't exist in our world is because, first, we're cut off from God, and second, we view each other as enemies. But remember what Jesus, the one from Bethlehem, does. He reconciles us to God, reconciles us with one another, and Paul would say, then gives us the ministry of reconciliation. You see, once you realize, once you repent and trust in Jesus and find that you are at peace with God, that you are at peace with your fellow brother and sister, then how can you do anything but be at peace? You see, when you and I aren't at peace, it's likely because we've taken our eyes off of the fact that Jesus has made us right with God and right with one another. We deceive ourselves when we tell each other or act as if we are enemies of one another. In Jesus, we are united to one another, and in Jesus, we are united to God. But here's the second thing you should notice. Jesus is our Peace. It's not just that Jesus brings peace, but Jesus is our peace. Your peace isn't your house. It's not your car. It's not a stable job. It's not retirement. It's not safety. It's not a happy family. It's not health. All of these things can and do get taken from us. That's not our peace. Micah says, Jesus is our peace. And here's why that's good news. Everything else that we are tempted to trust in, everything else that we're tempted to say, this will give me peace, this will give me security, this will make things right, all those can be taken and are taken regularly from us. But Jesus does not abandon his own. Jesus cannot be taken from you. And if Jesus is your peace, then your peace is not temporary. It's not simply a ceasefire or an armistice. Your peace is permanent. Jesus is, in fact, the provider, Micah would say, of a secure future because his name is great to the ends of the earth. You know Philippians 2. What happens at the end of that great hymn? Every knee will bow in heaven and on earth. So back to Micah's question. Is the one whose name is great to the ends of the earth, is it God himself or is it the ruler from Bethlehem? Well, this mystery wonderfully gets unraveled when you open your New Testament. 
And you learn that the answer is, as it often is, yes. Jesus is the ruler born from woman, born in Bethlehem. His name is indeed great to the ends of the earth. And, conveniently enough, this same Jesus is God himself. So for Micah, is it God whose name will be great? Or is it the ruler born from Bethlehem? The answer, yes. And because the answer is yes, this means the peace is permanent. The peace is lasting. It's why we can sing songs we just sang a minute ago. No grave could e'er restrain him. Praise the Lord, he is alive. And it's why the outflow of that is, is then what? Christ in power resurrected as we will be when he comes. We're a people with a future. We're a people with a hope because Jesus has united the ununitable because he has then brought us peace, given us a hope, and given us a future. This peace is not temporary, but it is permanent. And this is because Jesus' peace isn't primarily about the absence of something like conflict, but it's about the presence of something, namely, you and I set right with God and set right with each other. And so this Saturday is Christmas Day. And we celebrate. We celebrate because Jesus is God with us, and this God who is with us is, in fact, the God of peace who brings peace and makes peace. Friends, you have much reason for joy. Peace is present with us if only we keep our eyes fixed on the one who is indeed our peace. Pray with me that God would help us to do that. Jesus, you indeed are our peace. We confess that and we believe that. This isn't some dusty old checkbox that we just need to check and move on, but this is something that gives life and vitality to all that we do. And so may you teach us to live as people of peace. May you teach us to live as those who truly know that you have indeed come to dwell with us, and when you do that, you bring your peace with you. May we be people who bring peace because we know the peaceful one. So I pray that you would comfort those who are hurting and those who are aching. Would you keep their eyes fixed on you as they remember that you indeed are the bringer of peace, that your peace can't be taken away, and that you provide a future and a hope that is sure beyond measure. May our joy be full this morning. May we live lives that would please you. And we pray that you would do all of this for the sake of your beautiful name. Amen.